Welcome to the Unconventional Dyad Podcast, where you'll find broad topics, an unconventional dyad, and one shared goal. Educating ourselves through challenging and engaging conversations. Your hosts are Carly and Laura, two graduate students and friends committed to having discussions that are real, raw, and unpolished. Thank you for joining us. everyone. Thank you for tuning into episode number 17 of the Unconventional Diet Podcast. Today we have Dr. Elena Crows with us. Elena is a licensed psychologist. She works with children, adolescents, and adults, and she does primarily psychological evaluations. She also does competency restoration with children. So during the episode, we discuss what that is, what that work looks like, and really what the benefit is to having kids really understand their process in court. We also discuss COVID and COVID's impact on Alina's ability to conduct psychological evaluations. Lastly, we talk about the internship process. So Elena recently went through this process and we talk about what it looked like for her, what some of the questions were on the interviews, and then also how she decided where to rank sites. We hope you enjoy the podcast and like always, thank you so much for your continued support. Elena, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to get a chance to speak with you and catch up and see where where you've been the last seven or eight months. Uh, Before we get started, can you share a little bit about yourself? Maybe talk a little bit about parts of your identity that you think are important for our listeners to know about? Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, So part of my identity would be, um, in general, I'm just a caring person. And I think psychology has always Um, been important to me just from young age on being able to recognize emotions in others and how I was feeling at the same moment and um, being able to uh, console a friend or family member. So slowly over time, um, more awareness became um, apparent to me about psychology, mental health, and how it related to just all types of areas. Um, I'm still working on a professional identity, but I recently was licensed as a psychologist, so I'm very excited for that. And um, I lean more towards a psychodynamic approach and orientation with um, Rogerian uh, techniques and characteristics Mm -hmm. in there. So I completed my internship at the Department of Corrections and then went on for a postdoc at my current job at Psychological Assessment Services, and I'm still there. What population do you typically work with? Do you typically work with kids? Do you typically work with adults? A little bit of both? So I've been doing a little bit of both. Um, Right now, I'm doing evaluations or assessment. And it really ranges from a general mental health evaluation to a parenting capacity. Maybe Child Protective Services is involved and they're wondering um, how the parent is able to uh, parent their child and what their parenting skills and attitudes might be. 
Um, and then all the way to children. And look, sometimes we have school referrals um, saying what might be going on for the kiddo. Um, I am trained in the ADOS, which is really nice for autism spectrum disorder. So it's really a large range um, of types of assessments, but I really, throughout the years in grad school, balanced adult work with children classes and took practicum in both areas so that I could see a wide range of ages. But my true passion really is with mm. children. We've been in the middle of a pandemic and that it has certainly changed so many things. I'm curious about what your experience has been like moving virtual. Have you gone completely virtual with a lot of your assessments and therapy or have you been doing some in-person stuff too? So for a while we went completely virtual. There were some assessments that um, didn't feel comfortable over a telehealth format. So assessments for autism spectrum disorder, any type of psychosis, children younger than eight years old just didn't seem suitable for a telehealth. So I would ask that they wait or maybe seek another provider if it was urgent. Um, some of the telehealth over um, the COVID pandemic, it's been a little difficult. We had to adjust our measures and go troubleshoot, I should say, through technology. Sometimes, especially teenagers, they would get pretty bored. Uh, they would need several sessions to complete one or two measures instead of being able to do it in one sitting. Uh, parents really liked it since there is that concern of the pandemic and not wanting to get close um, to others. Some of our testing rooms are smaller, so it, it's difficult to socially distance. Um, now we are seeing more people in the office, uh, which we use our bigger rooms so that we can sit far apart. We're sanitizing everything. And it seems like such a need. We have a lot more referrals. So I think as the pandemic has gone on, Everyone has waited and now trying to get in to see their providers. Where, oh. where does that leave you? Do you feel like you're taking on more than you would have liked to normally? Or are you able to stick with your same structure as before? How, how are you handling the increased need with patients? I've been able to stick with my same structure. The only difference has been if someone needs more time for testing, then I've added on afternoon appointments or um, kind of broken up different times and tried to get maybe see them early in the morning, depending on their schedule. So it's been a little difficult um, to manage the multiple follow-ups, which usually if it was in person, we could get a lot more done. Um, so I've tried to balance work and at home life. Um, one of the more difficult parts of doing all assessment is once the appointment's over, now a report is due. So being able to take time out to say, okay, I have these follow-ups, but I also need to write these reports. So managing that time um, has caused me to be even more proactive and say, how can I get everything done? 
Um, but there have been a few where I may have to apologize to some clients and say, I'm really sorry, this report has taken me longer. There's been a few of those moments and everyone has seemed very um, sympathetic and understanding. Are you doing any therapy right now or are you doing 100% assessments? Um, so no therapy, about 95% assessment and then 5% of competency restoration. So I work with juveniles who are going through the court process and their attorney, judge, someone throughout that process said, it doesn't seem like they understand the court proceedings. Let's um, have them take a class and see if that would help. Um, so I've been also working in that area. What does that work look like? Um, it's really interesting because it, to me, it's so surprising to say, how come this child doesn't understand court here? Now you need remediation when in reality, it's such an odd thing to think a child would need that. So it, um, it's very interesting. A lot of um, kiddos, they catch on very quickly. So I teach them guilty, not guilty, no contest, what those all mean, uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, teach them, does it go to trial? What happens at the trial? Um, so just go through everything they'll need to be able to assist their attorney. Is this something that you learned while you were at internship? Is this something that you've developed through that, that internship process? Or is this something new that you've kind of found an interest in? Um, a little bit of both. So in during internship, we had several didactics every Friday we would meet up with um, Mendota Mental Health Institute and they would do competency restoration for adults. So sometimes the didactic information would uh, be more for the adult side and talk about the court process for adults. And then when I came to psychological assessment services, my supervisor trained me in that area and said, you know, this is, um, not really similar to therapy, but more more like that one-on-one -on -one relationship where you get to meet every week and you work towards a goal. Um, so she said, why not try it out? And it um, kind of came naturally and I'm really enjoying it. I, I didn't know that you did that, Elena. And I, I would love to talk to you at, at, at a different time about what, what that process is like and what it might look like in adults too. I, I find that really interesting. I didn't know that was a, a thing. So, <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. And um, I, it's, I find the most interesting part is that it's this assumption that children should just know it. <laughs> Speaking of children, can you talk a little bit about your, your research and what, what that has been like kind of diving into attachment theory and how you apply that now? Sure. Um, so I have really liked attachment theory and this idea of the attachment relationship between a child and their caregiver. And I was introduced to this um, theory in graduate school and it became kind of a passion of mine. Um, I really like how a mother or father or caregiver, how their history with their family and their caregivers informs how they're going to parent, how they're gonna to relate to others. But then at the same time, the child's temperament and the child's behaviors, the child's um, 
personality, all of it then is like a risk, uh, a cycle where then it informs how the parent reacts to them. So I just find this really interesting how the two different types of characteristics of the mother, father, and then the child, how those influence each other. Um, so what I looked at for my dissertation was how the attachment style of a mother with her premature child under three years old, how that may change or influence if the child had a chronic health condition and how it may influence behaviors between the two. So how they may uh, gaze at their child, speak to their child, uh, rock or hold, brush their hair. So different types of attachment behaviors, um, limit setting, how do they enforce rules. And what I found for that study, um, unfortunately, it didn't match previous literature. My group of mothers were more insecure, um, meaning maybe they were anxious, avoidant. It didn't match the previous research that said usually our population is 60% secure. So mine said um, about 85%. Do you see similar patterns in the population you work with? Do you, are you able to utilize attachment theory to better understand how they interact and how, they, uh, how their experiences in childhood affect how they act as either adolescents or adults? Yeah, um, it's really interesting, especially when a parent is able to bring their child and let's say the evaluation is only for the child and just seeing how they interact in the waiting room or how they interact through the, the appointment is very informative. Um, for example, being able to look at each other and smile or maybe the child starts to control the parent through their words and saying, no, we're not going to do this. So learning some of these things about attachment has helped me with my assessments and being able to say, oh, should I give this parent a, an attachment checklist? Or should I talk to them more about um, the behaviors that they're currently seeing, how they respond, and would a recommendation of um, attachment-based therapy be better than um, other types of therapy for the parent and child. So it's been really interesting to see how they interact in the moment. And it does help, even though the assessment is not specifically for their attachment, it's always on my mind um, how they are interacting throughout the appointment. And similar, there's, uh, for example, on some of the trauma measurements, it talks about an insecure attachment or impaired self-reference and not really feeling whole and not relating to people as well. And so that in my mind makes me think of maybe an adult who had early attachment issues and now they continue to relate to people in maybe a maladaptive way. Maybe they're more distant or um, have a hard time opening up and discussing intimacy and interpersonal uh, situations. Mm -hmm.
share a little bit more about your experience working with autism? Um, it's certainly something that has been talked about more over the last you know, decade or two. I'm, I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about how you approach uh, an assessment for autism and really what your thoughts are about, about kind of the movement to kind of get a better handle on what autism is, how to assess for it. Yeah, um, so I, for practicum, I did work with two clinics who um, tested for autism, more neuropsych um, testing. And it was interesting to see um, all ages and being able to get a good handle on what autism looks like. Um, because sometimes I think the lay person may believe, well, they didn't look me in the eye when I thought they should, so they have autism. Or this child just randomly spun around, so I think they have autism. So being able to decipher the difference of maybe hyperactivity and like impulsive noises or impulsive actions versus um, self-stimming behaviors of um, the traditional things we think of like hand flapping. Um, so that's been very uh, kind of ingrained where the supervisors I've worked with have said sometimes parents, they want this diagnosis sometimes they don't. So you have to really listen to what they're saying and see how the child interacts with you as well as them throughout the assessment um, in the waiting room to really get a good sense on what might be happening for them. Have you done many assessments with adults? If, if the question is autism, have you been assessing adults for, for autism or is it primarily kiddos? Recently, I've seen three adults, um, which is so funny because sometimes my work, I just kind of chuckle because in a week I'll see three very similar referral questions and I, or several referral questions. And it's always so funny where I'm like, oh, these three people are wondering about this. And then the next week, oh, now I have a handful of people wondering about depression. So in one week, I saw three adults that wondered, do I have autism? And it was really interesting what I, the ADOS goes from infant, toddlerhood um, through adults. And for adults, it's more talking to them, um, doing some different tasks to see how they relate to me. Um, and from that, one person, according to that measure, she met the criteria for autism. And her therapist kind of prompted her and said, what, you know, the way you and I relate and the difficulties you talk about in your life seem like autism. So it was really interesting to see the comparison between her and the two other people where that measure said, well, they might be a little more withdrawn or add, so to speak, but they don't meet the criteria. It's so, it's so interesting to me. I, I haven't worked a lot with uh, adults coming in for an assessment specifically for autism. I, I've had a few, most of them are kids, but I feel like when I'm providing therapy, I feel like the issue comes up a lot more questions about, wow, am I autistic? 
I am I exhibiting behaviors that would would seem like I have autism and I, I experience that a lot more in therapy than I do in assessments like people curious about autism have you seen adults really kind of being curious about autism and like do I have autism and do, do you experience that at all not so much for uh, an adult for themselves, but I experience a lot for parents and their children, mm-hmm. where sometimes with trauma, they a child has like extensive trauma history for like the first five years of their life. And then the parent may bring them in and say, it really seems like they have autism. Here's mm-hmm. what they're doing. But then the data comes back and the interaction and all of the appoint the assessment and how the appointment went kind of focuses more and points towards the trauma as being more salient versus meeting the criteria for autism. So for some reason, um, I haven't encountered uh, adults too often, um, just kind of in the reverse, where an adult is saying, look at my child, here's why I think they have autism. I, I have been experiencing that more and I don't know exactly why that is. I've had a few therapy clients just have a lot of fear that they might have autism. And I just, I, I don't know why that is. Kind of similar to you, you were saying you kind of get these waves of, of referrals coming in for a very similar question. I feel like I've been experiencing that in the therapy. Like, am I, do you, do you think I'm, am I autistic? So I, I've certainly had more of that over the last year than I have previously. So. Yeah, and I wonder too, a lot of adults have said to me, oh, my parents just thought I was an odd child or no one really cared about mental health back then. But now look at, here's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is weird? So I, um, I have had a similar experience where people, adults, will kind of say, well, I've always been like this. I never knew it was different until someone said, why do you do the- these things? Yeah. You, you mentioned the idea of trauma exhibiting similarly as autism. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how trauma could potentially look like autism as a child begins to develop a little bit more. Um, So one thing I think of with trauma is now the child may believe that the world is unsafe, people are unsafe, so to protect themselves, they may shut others out and not seek that interaction. They may prefer to play alone. They may hit, um, be afraid of others. They may not seek reassurance from their parents as often. Um, prior to that trauma. Um, They may do more self-soothing things um, to try and help regulate themselves. So from the outside, it might be like, why why is Jimmy spinning around again? Or why is he headbutting me? Um, He must have something going on. Um, And then I think it's been difficult for parents to see those behaviors as stemming from trauma. It's really interesting how it could manifest very similarly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, sometimes it's a little difficult to explain that to parents. So what I like to do is present both sets of criteria and say, 
here's how trauma looks for a child. Here's what I would need to diagnose autism. And then I try and make the comparison and say, here are the differences. Here's what we're seeing. And it matches more on this side or that side. Um, so it's been very interesting to see how parents react. And sometimes they, the realization, I think that the child meets um, a trauma diagnosis might be a little too difficult for them to say, oh, this is something that happened versus that's just how he is. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting to think about approaching a feedback session and um, preparing and wanting to support the parent and the child's uh, life and situation. Mm -hmm. I can see that being really difficult, especially if it's, I mean, when you, when you say trauma, I mean, that, that, that seems like a kind of a jarring, a jarring thing. I mean, autism, presenting an autism diagnosis, I think could be pretty jarring too, but something about trauma is just, it seems jarring. So I can, I can see why that would be really difficult for them to kind of come to that kind of realization that it might actually be trauma and not, not something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Elena, you are recently licensed. You went through the internship process. You went through the applications. I'm wondering if we can kind of venture back a few years and talk a little bit about what that process was like for you. So for internship, I think that process, it really flew by in the moment. It felt very long. All the applications felt uh, really just long and like tons of work. Uh, but I was really happy to apply to lots of places and had to think through um, what I want to be here for a whole year. And try and I did balance with the geographical location. So I did stick closer to home and stayed in Wisconsin for my searching. Uh, the interviews were nerve wracking, but I think they were very good practice for me to reflect on myself, my goals, why I was in the field and what I wanna do for the future. Um, sadly, I got all the rejection letters right up front. So that, that was a lot. Well, some of my uh, classmates or peers, they were receiving interviews for whatever reason, uh, I got like 15 no's right away. And then I started getting interviews. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was at first a little bit of a shock. I didn't think I would get quite so many no's. Mm -hmm. I had supervision right before this interview with a supervisor of mine. And he actually brought that up. He's like, Carly, he goes, do not start comparing yourself to your classmates. Um, <laughs> I've already had friends and classmates who've gotten interviews. And he's like, don't do it it happens uh, totally differently for each site. And so it's really interesting that you brought that up because just 45 minutes ago, I was just talking to my supervisor about that very thing, about receiving these rejections while your classmates are actually getting, it's really important to me that, that there is some type of work-life balance and that I'm not gonna be working 70 hours a week. That's certainly not something I want to engage in, so. <laughs> So I have a few more questions for you. I'm wondering, you know, we were in the middle of multiple pandemics. It's sometimes it's pretty hard to be future oriented, but I'm wondering if you can 
talk some to talk about some of your hopes for the future. What, what how how hard that is to maybe kind of take in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's so true. I mean, in the moment, I'm like, don't compare. But then it's like, oh, but now this person has good news. I'm happy for them. But oh, I got another email. <laughs> yeah. So what what were the interviews like for you? You mentioned that you actually were able to really sit back and get a lot out of the interviews, um, specifically around like who I want to be, what my goals are. Kind of before you went to interview, what were some things that were coming to mind that you really wanted to to share with the people who are interviewing you? Uh, so I think the biggest thing I wanted to share was that I approach life in a more flexible manner so that I was open to um, whatever the position may hold. I liked group, I liked individual therapy, I liked assessment. So I was really open to a more generalized approach and I wanted to kind of have a work-life balance though. So sometimes some of the interviews I was able to meet with the current interns and I saw some signs that maybe it wouldn't be a good fit if someone was working 60 to 70 hours. Mm -hmm. So I kind of reflected in that area and said, okay, could I do that for one year? Is that something that I would be able to handle? And um, some, some interviews, they would put it out front and say, this is what we expect. And here's the hours you would work. Um, here are the tasks. So I think just thinking beforehand and being able to say, do I want exclusively assessment? Do I only want therapy? Can I do a mixture? Um, it was really nice. And funny enough, um, I matched with Department of Corrections in a very good internship and then went on to my current place. So both a more forensic lens. Um, my supervisor, she does a lot of competency evaluations and assesses chil children in detention center. Um, so it's been more of a forensic focus, which was my ultimate goal for bonding assessments which has a more forensic lens. Mm -hmm. So it's really kind of set me up to start doing my bonding assessments. I always thought it would be further down the line, but I was able to stay at my current position and um, put the materials together and start offering those. So that was one thing I remember reflecting when I would talk about my dissertation and talk about attachment and then say, oh, one of my future goals are these types of assessments. <laughs> that is just such a wonderful story <laughs> to really see how everything transpired and worked out in the end. And I, for myself, I'm hoping that ultimately happens, um, but certainly I'm, I have a long way to go. But can you, can you think back at some of these interviews and think about some of the more difficult questions you, you were asked or that really tripped you up a little bit? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I remember one interview that in the moment, I don't feel that I did as well as I hoped. And one question um, was about when a client starts crying. And do I feel emotional? Do I get upset when they cry? 
can I handle what's happening? And I'm not sure what stirred up inside of me, but all of a sudden I was saying, no, I can't handle this. And then after I left the interview, I thought, well, how many clients have I sat with and felt that emotion and successfully navigated the therapy session? <laughs> but for whatever reason, my own nerves, all of a sudden I'm saying, no, I can't handle it. So I think that was one of the questions I didn't anticipate. And then my nervousness took over. Um, I didn't get that internship, so I'm not sure if that question was very important. <laughs> That's such an interesting question to be asked. Can you handle someone's crying? That, that's such an interesting question. I wonder what they were actually looking for when they were asking that for, of you. Yeah, because even now when I think about it, anybody could say yes, but for whatever reason, <laughs> I went with my first thought of no. <laughs> I guess on a whim as I'm reflecting about that, I, I who knows, I might be asked that question, but that, I mean, I guess it depends on what I would feel in the moment, depending on the alliance, depending on the client, depending on why they're crying, if it's something I could identify with. I would imagine that for me, it would certainly depend on the client and what the context was of the crying. But yeah, that's an interesting question, Elena. <laughs> yeah, it was so specific and it, it really just threw me off. So I've, ref I reflected on it and I said, okay, if that's asked again, maybe take a deep breath think through it <laughs> yeah in terms of the ranking um I know we're getting a, lo a little bit specific but Laura and I are actually doing um, a mini series on the internship process so I think this might go well with with that how did you go about determining your your ranking how did you um, identify what sites you really wanted to rank higher or lower what were some things that were important for you? I looked at what the site was offering in terms of work. Um, so was it group, assessment heavy, therapy heavy? So what they were offering, I looked at the population I would be serving. I thought about the work-life balance. I do have kids, so I wanted to have enough time to see them in the evenings and on the weekends and not only work. Uh, so I looked at that and then I didn't want to move too far from family. So I also looked at the location. Yeah, I'm always really interested to hear what people find important and how they do their rankings. And I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that the process will be similar for me, really. The importance of work-life balance is something I'm particularly um, really um, I, I feel like there's been a shift in uh, people's ability to talk about mental health and say, wow, I'm experiencing depression. And then someone else to say, oh, yeah, you know, me too. I um, had those same symptoms and here's how I got through it. Here's a good therapist. Um, so I feel like I've seen a shift in people being able to destigmatize their own experience and be able to just open up to others in an appropriate way. I feel like I've seen a lot on social media where someone may just say, you know what, I'm gonna take a break. I need to look at my mental health and focus on me right now. So I feel like mental health has just been uh, more advertised in a healthy way and saying, 
you know, what you're thinking, how you're feeling, it's important, and it really influences so much of our lives. So I feel like that's been a big shift, and I'm hoping to see that become more normalized. Because when I think of the medical field, I never think it's odd for someone to say, oh, I had the flu, and I was sick on my couch. Um, And then someone else to say, oh, man, me too. A year ago, I was so sick from the flu. I went to the doctor, and they gave me medicine, and then I was fine. So just thinking about how mental health can be so stigmatized when we all have emotions, we all have our own experience, and just being able to get through um, by connecting with others, I just see that as the future and being so important, especially Mm -hmm. now that we have COVID and being able to not or not be able able to see others and having to socially distance. Mm -hmm. You kind of read my mind a little bit. I'm, I wanted to also not only look at the future, but also look at that the last eight to 12 months. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you can share a little bit about a lesson that you may have learned over that time period and how do you envision that lesson being carried out into your future work? I think I learned um, personally, I reminded myself of the work-life balance. I think with assessment, it's easy to say, oh, I only have this appointment, but forgetting the scoring and interpretation and the report writing. So over the last few months, the pandemic actually gave me a nice break in breathing room to say, okay, well, this person is um, no longer on my schedule. Um, They had to cancel or, okay, this person doesn't want telehealth. They're going to reschedule. So it's kind of built in some breaks for me. Um, And then professionally, I recently had a therapist connect with me and she said, oh, I can't, you know, I have this release for this person. I can't wait to speak with you and give you a little background information prior to the appointment. The parents are okay. And um, for some reason, her last sentence, I can't wait to see what makes her mind tick. It just really stuck with me. Um, I was kind of in a rut thinking, oh, assessment, I do the tests and then I give them their report, but I never know what happens. I never know the follow-up. Did they go to therapy or did they join the group? Um, How are they doing? So when she said that, it reminded me that even though I don't know what happens, it's still such important work and helps guide the treatment for them um, versus therapy where every week or every two weeks, I get to see the outcome. So I have over the last eight to 12 months kind of missed therapy. Um, but I, I think that sentence just reminded me, oh, yeah, these tests are helping me show therapists or parents or clients how they think and behave. I cannot imagine what it would be like to end a relationship so often with patients. You do the assessment, the relationship ends. You do another assessment, the relationship ends. And for me personally, I'm, I'm very interested in the process of termination. In fact, that's what my dissertation is about. And I would imagine there's an immense sense of loss, grief, being someone who only does assessments and not being able to see that client move on, develop, change, whatever it might be. 
can you tell, can you share a little bit about what that's like to see them go and never, never see them again? Yeah, I definitely agree. There's this feeling of loss that I won't know the outcome because um, it would be so inappropriate for me to reach out. Um, so sadly, I'll never know how they change or grow. So I think that it has been difficult and has come into my awareness in the last few months. Um, grief is a good way to put it because it's, I want the best for everyone. So in my mind, I have hope like they're going to find one thing in the recommendations and I know one thing will probably stick for them. Mm -hmm. And there's hope that things will get better. That's a really good place to end. This idea of that there is hope that things can change, get better. Um, so Elena, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to get a chance to to speak with me. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking. Where do you see the psychology profession going? In interviews and how yes. and how